Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, Interview with a Survivor, our hosts, Lucky and Tim, will be discussing near misses, problem projects, and resolutions. In today's episode, There Will Be Rocks Ahead, Cord Weissman discusses his professional highs along with a significant low, a failure of a ground improvement system below an MSE wall in the US Midwest. Proudly brought to you by our series sponsor, Peer Research, and today's episode sponsor, Geostructures. I'm Tim, and I'm glad to be here with my co-host, Lucky. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Tim. Great to be here. This is our second episode in our series, Interview with a Survivor, where our guests share their ups and downs on their projects that went wrong. Today, our guest is Cord Wisman. While many listeners probably know Cord, for those that who may who might not, Cord is the president and chief engineer of Geopeer. In prepping for the show, during our conversations, I learned that Cord wanted to be a civil engineer from a young age and attended Virginia Tech after he was waitlisted by MIT. Cord then attended UC Berkeley and then finally returned to Virginia Tech and completed a PhD. He joined NatFox uh, Nat at Geopeer in 1998 and has since been credited with transforming the company into a global ground improvement leader. Cord also holds 28 pay- patents. That's an amazing achievement. One of his many honors is the Wallace Baker Award in recognition of ingenious innovation in the field of ground modification. He's also an avid traveler. I always enjoy listening to his adventures. I understand that biking is your passion cord. Can you share one of your biking adventure with our listeners? Oh, uh, great. Hi, Lucky. Hi, uh, Tim. Thanks for having uh, uh, me on this podcast. Uh, real fun. Yeah, I like to I like to bike a lot. Um, I bike maybe 150 miles a week or so, something like that. And that's not a lot for some people, but a lot for others. And um, I think maybe one of the one of the funnest adventures I had was um, I was in Maui one year and got it into my head to, to ride my bike to the top of the volcano. And, uh, and that, that was a nice run. You start at the bottom on the north side of, of Maui, and then you wind your way up to the top. It's about 10,000 feet at the top. Uh, altitude's low. It's cold up there. Uh, and then uh, coming down, of course, it's, uh, it's exciting coming down. A little easier coming down than going up. But uh, that, was, that was a fun one. Yeah. Adrenaline rush. I love that. Cord. Uh, you and I uh, go back a ways um, and we've had many opportunities to kind of sit and talk to one another about a variety of things. And one of the things that we talked about recently is the differences in our childhoods. And, you know, I shared with you that I grew up in a small town uh, in Georgia during the recession. And while our family really never went hungry, uh, there were some desperate times and and we were focused on the present and we really didn't, uh, you know, we didn't talk about the future that much. It was just mainly what was going on at the time and uh, addressing the needs uh, around us. Um, I've always had a job kind of in turn and 
uh, since I was 16. And that was mainly because nobody would hire me before that. I feel like for me, that was formative. I, it, that, that uh, push that I had growing up, it, it instilled a drive in me. But for you, when we talked, you, you talked about a, a much different childhood. And I thought it would be nice to kind of go back and maybe give the listeners some idea of, of what, was, what it was like to grow up Cord Wisman. Uh, yeah, I think uh, our childhoods were quite different, Tim, and and yet in some respects the same. My uh, my parents were German immigrants, and, and uh, they came over from Germany uh, back in about a year before I was born. I was born in '64, so they came over in '63, and um, they were they took a lot of their old country with them. So I I was raised as a little German kid. I uh, didn't even know I was American, really, um, until I was maybe in second or third grade. I sort of identified as being a German kid. We were always supposed to go back to Germany. Um, and then at some point, we didn't. And then at some point, I realized, no, I was, uh, I was American and, and, uh, and, and very much am an American, served in the Air Force and, and those kinds of things. Um, but it was, it was interesting. And, and we were never poor. Uh, my parents were middle class. And, my dad was an engineer, and he, I think, instilled some of that engineering uh, in me um, as well. Uh, but like you, I started working early too. They they had a work ethic. My parents did. And they instilled that upon us. And and um, I think I was fourteen. I, st- I was picking apples, uh, you know, at the orchard. And and you could do that when I was fifteen. I, Wait, I, um, you had mentioned that you yeah. thought you would be a civil engineer from an early age, probably probably way earlier than I even knew civil engineers exist. So what, how old? I think third grade or so, you know, however old you are in third grade. Yeah. And my dad, well, I like building things and I talked to my dad about what I should be. And he said, well, you should be maybe an architect. And he scratched his head. He said, well, or maybe a civil engineer. Cause they actually, you know, do the things that enable the architects to do the architecture. And so that's when I learned what a civil engineer might be. And, and that was one of my, my goals from third grade on. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, I think uh, uh, for someone to think of being a civil engineer at that young age, it's amazing. We have learned that, you know, there are most prominent individuals in our industry who have definitely taught you something and influenced you in who you are today. If you have to pick three of them, uh, this is because of the interest of time. I'm sure you can come up with like more than three. Um, Can you tell something about each of them? Well, that's, that's a hard road to hoe. You know, there's so many influential engineers and people uh, in my life for sure that taught me so much. If I had to pick uh, I might start with Mike Duncan. Uh, he was um, an undergraduate professor when I was at Virginia Tech. I was taking these geotechnical courses as an undergraduate, and I wanted to go to uh, grad school, and I was asking him about that, and I remember him looking at me, and he said, he said, Cord, you know, um, beg, he said, beg, borrow, or steal. Do whatever it takes to go to grad school. Right. Beg, borrow, or steal. And Tim, maybe you could have used some of that borrowing. I, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe for me, it was stealing. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that was influential to me. Um, another pe- person I might pick would be uh, Wayne Clough. 
Uh, Wayne was also part of my undergraduate education, but also uh, was my PhD advisor, at least started it off. And, and he left Virginia Tech at some point during my PhD. You know, the smart kids, he would take the smart kids with him. When a professor would go to another university, they would take the smart kids with him. And he left me behind at Virginia Tech. <laughs> I don't think that had anything to do with Florida, but... <laughs> so he didn't even ask me if I wanted to go with him. But he went off to University of Washington and, and eventually the Smithsonian. I remember asking him at one point, I said, well, you know, don't you, don't you feel bad leaving engineering behind? And and his uh, comment to me was, you know, I think I have a lot of things to offer the world, and it's not just engineering that I can offer the world. And, and that, that really struck me at that point in my life. Uh, uh, you know, you can really do a lot of good in the world, not just engineering, not just your career field. That was good. And then Harry Seed might be a third, and, and he was teaching at Berkeley when I was there. Um, and it wasn't, again, like the other two, it wasn't really the geomechanics um, lesson, but he... He taught a lesson about um, talking about the problem things that you have in your life, the problems um, in your technical life. And I remember his quote, it was what, something like this. He said, you know, we like to talk about our, our, our successes so much, don't we? And, and they make us look really good, but we don't learn too much from our successes, do we? And, and then he went on and told, talked about why, why we don't do that. But it was a big impression on me. And I think on a lot of other people that, you know, it's the it's when you have a problem and when things don't go right, you can learn a lot from when things don't go right, both professionally and personally. So <laughs> I think we're going to talk about that here on this podcast. So it looks good. Yeah. I think those are the three. Yes, that's that's such wise advice, Cord. Beg, borrow, or steal, right? I remember, you know, uh, I'm not saying that like literally begging, but it's almost like you know, looking at other influencers and influencers in the industry and borrowing what they have done, what they do best, right? That is amazing. And I love what you said about don't leave any engineer behind. That's such a great thing, right? Like we need to bring everyone together with us, teach them um, how uh, we taught from others, right? That's amazing. So let's skip ahead to your beginnings at GeoPeer. In 1998, the concept of performance-based design build for ground improvements was almost non-existent. GeoPeer has been a part of changing our industry, and now there are many design-build ground improvement contractors, right? Look around us. Um, how did this big change happen? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, so, you know, in 1998, uh, uh, Nat Fox had already started this, uh, this GeoPeer thing. And, uh, you know, some people know Nat. He, he's, he was kind of a wild character. Um, the way I would describe him would be, if you remember good old Doc Brown from Back to the Future, you know, the guy with crazy hair and the, and the car that would go to the future. Um, that, that was Nat's twin brother. And, and that one's kind of crazy and a little bit out there, but also brilliant. And, and he came up with this really simple little thing they called GeoPeer and, it, and, uh, and he started it. And, and we, had, we had nothing when I joined him. We had, we had really no projects, not, not many. Um, we had no brand, we had no reputation. We, we really had 
we had a good idea. It was Nat Fox's good idea. And he had and the good people. He surrounded himself with some really good people. Uh, Mike Cowell was definitely one of them. One of the reasons I joined GeoPeer with because Mike Cowell was part of the GeoPeer group. I know Mike's going to be on this podcast later, I think. So our challenge at that time was just to convince people that we knew what we were doing, <laughs> or at least we wouldn't harm their project too much, you know, and, um, and we were successful. We, we made it simple and we, we brought it to a lot of folks and, 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 and then started growing it. And, and that's transformed the industry. I would say Nat Fox has transformed the industry in a great way. Um, today, the, the challenge is different. You know, it's capitalist society we live in. Uh, people, people want, you know, part of a good deal, of course, and uh, competition is part of it. And so we've attracted a lot of competition over the years. And, and so, you know, today's challenge is different. It's um, is to continue to differentiate ourselves from our competition, to continue to upscale uh, the industry and offer new innovative solutions that perhaps other people can't quite do, uh, to be a standard bearer in the industry and to help other people achieve uh, levels of service and, and levels of uh, quality that we need in the industry to have a strong industry. But, but I'm proud, I'm actually proud of the competition that we've, I wouldn't say created, but we've attracted, we've attracted competition. I'm, I'm, a, I'm proud of that. And by and large, I'm proud of the competitors and the people that run them as well. Ord, I lived through that. I remember um, a small uh, anecdote that occurred in the early, maybe it was early 90s, uh, mid 90s. And um, one of my colleagues was in a meeting with Nat Fox and the, and Nat was doing a very good discussion about um, what GeoPeers could do and that kind of thing. And finally, the, my colleague looked at him as the geotechnical engineer and said, how much settlement do you think it would have? And he looked across the table and said, one inch. Then about maybe three seconds when Spiney goes, no, 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 no. Three quarters of an inch. They ran a load test. It was three quarters of an inch dead on. My colleague was a believer from then on. He's like, Nat Fox knew to the, uh, you know, to the 10th <laughs> of an inch, how much it would settle during a load test. And um, I, I do remember how novel it was. We wrote reports that, in many cases, we're dealing, we were really struggling to deal with risk. And GeoPeer came in and, and really led a path forward that everyone could deal with the risk. The owner could understand his risk position. The geotech engineer felt like he could tolerate the risk. And then, of course, GeoPeer, who were hands-on, had a way of handling the risk. So anyway, I just wanted to bring up that little anecdotal story about the mad professor and how he won, won my colleague over. No, that that is very true, Tim. I think uh, um, I have not lived through it, but I've heard so many stories about Nat Fox. And uh, my first introduction to GeoPeers was down in Florida, my first job after graduating. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing, how it was being installed, you know, uh, down in Florida where you have sinkholes and crazy things can happen overnight. It, it was a life lifesaver and a game changer for sure. Definitely. Um, so Cord, as you know, we chose the title Interview with a Survival for the series, right? Uh, <laughs> we really want to learn firsthand from people 
who have lived highs and lows on projects. A few minutes ago, you just explained how we see successes of the projects and failures of the projects, right? So before we dig into one of your projects, um, it would be great if you can talk about the differences between what we may call owners designers and design build designers. Oh, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a big question, I think. Um, but, but a good question, you know, I, I, um, I think engineers, first of all, of engineers that I've come to know and consulting and, uh, and especially contracting, you know, you know, by and large, we're all the same. We're, we're, we're all engineers and we all want to do the right thing. I've met very few engineers that didn't want to do the right thing. Um, in fact, I'm, I don't know if I've met even one that didn't want to do the right thing somewhere. Um, but I would say that the, the environments are different. And, and when I was in, in consulting, and I, I was in consulting for about eight years before doing uh, the, the GeoPeer thing, um, the, uh, the environment is one in which you, you give away your value uh, on every project. So in every project you retain to, um, to provide expert opinion, and then you provide that expert opinion in, uh, in the form of a report or engineering drawings. And, and, you, and, you, and you transfer your value. And, and as such, it's hard to retain um, that creative value that, you, that you, might create. you might create for one project, but you've given it away as part of the universe now, um, and, and everybody knows it. And, and as such, there, um, there is little uh, motivation to give away too much value. You have a certain fee uh, that's associated with this project, um, as you start putting yourself out there, um, then the risk threshold that's associated with uh, this recommendation becomes uh, larger because there's more unknown. And that brings risk to your company and to your professional stature. And so there's a, there, because of the, uh, the way the industry is set up, there's a propensity not to provide not to be too risky and therefore to limit the value that you might, you might be able to provide. But in the specialty contracting, because you retain the value from project to project to project, you're incentivized to go ahead and um, accept some of that risk. And, and, um, and so you, you accept some of that risk, you understand it is, you quantify the risk, you find ways to uh, make sure you evaluate the risk before you, the building goes up and you do those kinds of things, you have more control. Um, but it's really the environment that changes the risk threshold, in my view, between a consulting engineer and a specialty contracting engineer. Did I answer your question? Yes, very mm -hmm. much. I think it's a fine line between the two. And then if you don't understand the fine line and if you don't understand the risks each parties can bring into the project, then it will be a disaster. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Cord, I, I think if you ask owner's designers, if you, they can eliminate risk, they would more often say yes. And I say that because many cases where I see it, it's a, an owner's design, they have, very, very strict specifications, and they have very prescriptive information, and all in, and then, and also they have a, a sculptory language that, that, that basically puts, tries to put everything else on the owner. 
um, I mean, excuse me, put everything else on the contractor. I think if you ask design build designers, they would say, no, they can't eliminate risk or they more often they would say that. Would you agree with such a distinction? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with you, Tim. Uh, I, I'd agree, but I would also say that real risk is never eliminated, right? There is risk involved with our, with a geoprofessionals, risk involved with living <laughs> in the world. And there's risk involved with our geoprofessionals. So for those who think that by writing a set of specifications or, or transferring responsibilities from one party to another, that by doing so, you eliminate risk. I think the risk is still there, but you transfer risk. And, and you transfer risk from yourself as much as possible to somebody else. And, and part of that's because there's no reward in that environment to accept any risk for yourself. Uh, and then getting to the second part, the uh, geotechnical engineer that works for a specialty contractor, um, you're forced to accept that risk. If, if you want to bid that project, the risk of that project comes, it comes with it. And you have to find a way to identify that risk, minimize that risk, um, maybe do some testing up front to make sure that um, if you are going beyond what you would normally go beyond um, in, uh, in trying to win the project that, that you fully identify what you're doing. Maybe it goes back, Tim, to your story about the load test. You know, you had a story about the three quarter of an inch load test. He got it right on the dot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he didn't say five eighths of an inch. Yeah. And but, that, but no, you, yeah, you, I mean, I think that's an important lesson that, that maybe our younger listeners could grasp. And that is whether you're on the owner's side or you're on the contractor's side, the, there is risk and who is really well built to deal with risk are contractors. They, they know it's there and there's really no way on the owner's side that they can just write a, like a foolproof specification or a foolproof set of notes that where the contractor you're, you're, you're kind of trying to uh, shoehorn them into a position where there's no compensation for them uh to cover their risk in certain cases that those contractors that would uh, fall into that shoehorn aren't in business anymore. And the ones that are in business are shrewd enough to know when they're they're the, the people are trying to shoehorn them into it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, we, we see plenty of projects where somebody's really trying to, transfer that risk over to us and and you know like i said earlier if you if you want to go ahead and have that opportunity to work on that project you have to find a way to deal with it you're exactly right we are coming up on our sponsor break but before we do that i want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your project I assume that you and Geopeer were the design build contractor for ground improvement. It's a design build highway project where contractor, designer, geotechnical specialist, everyone were involved. 
and a 35 feet high MSCE wall over improved ground. More litigious with design build compared to design bid build. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Well, I, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, was a, a fun exercise uh, when you invited me to come talk on this uh, podcast to, to embrace a project that didn't do so well. And I think it's never comfortable for folks to do that. And, and uh, but this project, you, you had right, it was a, an MSC wall um, that was uh, somewhere in the, in the Midwest and about 35 feet tall. And, uh, and it was a pretty standard kind of thing, you know, kind of a standard wall, standard geoperiodic construction, standard profile, standard a lot of things. But what was not standard was about 400 feet section of that, of that MSC wall slid. And it didn't slide just a little bit lucky. It slid a lot. <laughs> it slid eight feet sideways. So it really kind of moved a little bit. And uh, you couldn't really look left to right and say, no, not much of an issue. There was an issue, you know, right away. If you, you didn't call that a failure, I'm not sure what you'd call a failure. That, yeah, that, that was the project. Thanks, Cord. Okay, so it's time for us to take a brief break and recognize the sponsor for this episode. Geostructures is a company of design builders that love using innovative ground improvement and earth retention solutions to solve foundation support, slope stability, and grade separation problems for their clients. They believe that anyone can bid a set of plans, but real value occurs by improving that plan, by providing an efficient design that is easy to build, it lowers overall project costs, and improves the schedule. Geostructures President and CEO, Mike Cowell, joins us. Welcome, Mike. Hello, Tim. Glad to be here. And uh, great to see Cord and, and everybody. Uh, so appreciate the opportunity to ask Cord some questions. And they, they will not be royalty related. Um, <laughs> but in, anyway, over the past 20 years, we've worked together on a lot of projects and from baseball stadiums and hockey arenas, 14 story office buildings. And over those 20 years, every once in a while, doesn't happen very often, thank God, we get the call from the owner and the owner says, hey, listen, I'm having a problem with my building. It's, I think it's settling. You need to be here for a meeting right away. Tomorrow morning, get here. And now considering our geo-professional business association background and what we've learned from being a member there and just the school of hard knocks uh how would you uh advise say some of our listeners on how to handle a situation like that well that's uh, <laughs> that's a tough question mike uh, but but i think a real good one it it seems to me uh, i look back at the first time I got such a call um, at, at GeoPeer, uh, and um, at first, you know, your first reaction, my first reaction was denial. You know, you get the call, <laughs> I don't think so, you know, couldn't have happened. And, and, then, and then there's a little bit of fear and, and the fear kind of sets in and because and, it's fear of the unknown and fear of being accused of things. And, 
um, and then uh, and then you you go to the meeting and your question was you know how do you handle yourself at, at that meeting and, and knowing at least I remember going into that meeting with the with the fear and a little bit of denial and you know not wondering what was going to happen to me uh, and happen to us um, and and one thing I would say and I learned a lot of this right from you Mike um, is the, the first thing to do when you have one of those meetings it, it sounds crazy but but say hello to everybody you know because everybody in that room is in in the room for a reason they have skin in that game uh, they have a need <laughs> a need that needs to be met and and saying hello as engineers we tend not to want to say hello to people we tend to be introverts and, and learning, learning to say hello, that's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing is to stay calm uh, and, um, and to realize that, you know, there's, there's something. Uh, and then focus on the data. You know, what happened and when did it happen and, and, and how did it happen? And, and I remember you, Mike, you taught me when I, a few years ago, maybe when I first started working with you, you used to tell me, Corey, let's just do the dragnet approach, right? That's just the facts, ma'am, you know? And, and, and you used to use that, that phrase. I've used that many times myself since. And, and so you get the facts and you line them up and to realize everybody in that room has a need. The need needs to be met and satisfied, including the owner who, who paid some money to get this thing right. If you focus on those things, you can quickly focus on getting to a practical solution to the problem. Uh, not defensive solution, not one where you're hiding things, you're just speaking to the facts and, um, and, and think, solving things practically. And, and I've found that by doing so, treating people well, they'll treat you well and, and you get to a good solution almost all the time. I have two more questions. Um, next question is over, you've been at GEAPEER quite a long time and, and over the last say 15 years, we've developed dozens of ways to install aggregate peers and rigid inclusions. And I was just wondering which one of the inventions do you believe had the biggest impact on the geotechnical industry and, and which one are you the most proud of? Yeah, well, I'd have to go back to good old Nat Fox's first year pair, right? That, that classic GP system, which is still being used today worldwide, uh, really changed the world. And it was so simple. Maybe that's why it changed the world so much. It was so simple and so effective. Tim talked earlier about the load test that went exactly to three quarters of an inch <laughs> and you could really dial it in. And I, I always say that that was the most fundamental. All the other things we've done have been wonderful, but, but not as transformative in my view. Um, the one that, that, I guess there's two that I really like that are maybe a little, one's a little quirky, one's a Densipak thing, which was a, a compaction tool. It's not being used very much, um, but it was, it was creative. But the one that I think I'm most proud of is the one is the is the, uh, the impact uh, chain head, and and it's it's used in the impact and a rampack system. I, I know all these these X1. These are all things that we do, and and it's a way of using um, a skirt of chains to act as a valve below grade, and and it's the only valve that I know that that can withstand that kind of uh, harsh environment, and it works really amazingly well so that was uh i was i thought that was a creative one yeah better than the plates i'll tell you that um 
Last question. Over the last 20 years, you've seen a lot of different projects and uh, which project were you most amazed at in terms of its performance when you use ground improvement elements? Think about that a little bit. I, you know, I, I go back to our early years together, Mike, and some of those early projects, it, it was amazing how simple a tool like this uh, GeoPeer could, could do so well. But, but the one that sticks in my mind the most is this uh, highway embankment in Ecuador. And, and it was this uh, embankment over this marshy ground on the surface and it was liquefiable sand. And they had a magnet, and we, we put in uh, impact piers about nine feet on center. And, and it was in silty liquefiable soils. They had the big one about three or four years after we built these things. And the big one is magnitude eight and a PGA on the order of 0.4 G. And, and it shook a, the, whole, the whole country of, of Ecuador. There was a, an embankment that was not stabilized and not improved in any way, but a similar embankment that catastrophically failed not too far from the embankment that, uh, that we had worked on. And the one we worked on, there was, there was a hairline crack down the center line of the roadway and, and to see the dramatic difference of those performance in real real earthquakes um that that, that was stunning okay. well, thanks cord for and good luck bearing your soul on the rest of this <laughs> thanks, thank you mike hey mike thank, thank you, so you uh thank you for joining us and uh Thanks to Geostructures for your support. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks very much to Mike and Geostructures. And now for the conclusion of our episode. Before our sponsor break, Cord, you were telling us about a 400 foot long section of MSE wall that failed. Um, this wall was supported by improved ground that was designed by GeoPier. Take us back. How did you, how did the news reach you? And what were your next steps in this situation? Oh, wow. Um, it was, it was in the springtime. And, and I think anybody who, you know, this was a stability issue. And, and most folks who's dealt with stability issues, most of us, Tim, I'm, I'm sure you're in this group as well. Lucky you too. You know, the st stability issues often occur in the springtime after a big rain. And sure enough, it rained at that job site tremendously um, before um, this uh, problem occurred. Uh, but you get, you get the, the call. And in, in, in my case, I think the call came from a region engineer who had worked on this project called the headquarters office and said, you know, Houston, we got a problem, you know, and then, and then the next thing you see is a picture that comes across the email wire and it's like, yeah, no doubt uh, we do have a problem. So um, that was first, your heart kind of stops and you look at that and you say, oh goodness, what, what happened? Um, Cord. I understand that two aspects were identified as relevant to the failure. One was a difference between the design, which was based on 30% drawings, and the as-built condition, 
The second one was the unanticipated soil behavior. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the first one. Isn't it normal that there are changes to the 30% design? That's why it is called as 30% design. Isn't it vital that those changes are usually communicated to you as the designer? So what went wrong? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question, Lucky. And, and, and I would say that, you know, when things go wrong on projects, it's almost always about communication. There's always communication somewhere in, in a root cause you know, somewhere. And this particular project, it was a design build job as opposed to a design bid build job. And so in a design bid build job, there, there's more time for the owner's engineer to develop the scope and do the investigation do the analyses, write the specifications, put the project up for bid, all of those things. And design build for those of us who have done these, and I know Tim's done a lot of them, um, it, you know, the schedule goes fast. And, and you have arguably com- complete information or not. Uh, the the bidding occurs as a subcontractor as the project is still being designed. So in this particular case, there was a, a grade change. There was a low area at the toe of the wall that wasn't identified by the uh, in the project documents. Um, but with with sufficient time and investigation, would have been discerned but it wasn't identified as, as a critical section. So it was one of these things where in the communication speed and the speed of the development of the project as the project went through the owner's engineer and then through us, you know, this low spot wasn't identified in the proper way and it was significant. Uh, and, then, and then the second part was the, uh, uh, the soil behavior. And, and the soil behavior was characterized based on, you know, pretty normal geotechnical approaches, you know, normal in situ tests, and those kinds of things. And it just happened to be that the correlations that were drawn using those, uh, those tests, uh, shear strength correlations, they happened to be incorrect for mm-hmm this particular wall and and so those are the two changes well well Gordon, you had mentioned to us uh, earlier when we were discussing the project that in this case the geotechnical specialist they provided explicitly the soil parameters to be used in the design and you use them and and but in, in this particular case, you mentioned that you probably would not have used different ones yourself, but, but just in general, in the design build environment, um, let's just say in a project, you look at it, the sole parameters were provided explicitly by the geotechnical specialist, and you don't agree with them. Could bidding it put you at a disadvantage? If you, if you change the soil parameters, the design parameters, and it leads to a more expensive design, aren't you 
penalizing yourself for having too much knowledge? That's a really good question, Tim. Um, let's see. If you if you bid it with more conservative parameter values, because you know something. Yeah, because you know something. Then the chances are that you would um, not be awarded the project because That's you're right. probably going to be have a solution that you develop, not necessarily, but you probably have a solution that's gonna be more conservative than, than those you're, um, you're bidding against. It, it uh, depends on the degree, right? But, but don't you kind of see this issue that if it's a competitive environment and someone explicitly puts the parameters together, if, if you think they're too aggressive or a design, a, let's say a, a design builder thinks they're too aggressive, they can be penalized for not having too much information or, or too much knowledge. You can be penalized or, or, or not. Um, or walk away. Yeah, it is. You can also, like in this particular case, you could win the project with the parameter values and then pay on the backside. <laughs> so I'm not sure that, you know, being penalized for not winning the project is, is a penalty. In this it's a strange conundrum, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, in a legal environment, you have the right to rely on the engineering uh, that was provided by another professional engineer who, who's, um, who's skilled in the, in the craft. Um, and so from a legal perspective, you're, you know, that, that's fully allowed. And the example there would be a structural engineer um, has the right to rely on earth pressures provided by a geotechnical engineer who is skilled in the craft of geotechnical engineering. And, and, and in that way, we have the right to rely on the parameter values provided by others. Now, that said, that said, the project documents also said, but you have to perform your own um, geotechnical analyses and, and select your own parameter values, but here's what we used. So it was a, it was a bit of a conundrum, yeah. Cord, I know you're the kind of person that uh, takes any experience, good or bad, and use it to improve. I, I, and I know that because you're a leader in the industry, and, and that's what leaders do. Um, and, and, and it also kind of goes back to your quote by uh, Harry Seed. Um, you know, as I was kind of preparing for this session, uh, I did a little bit of checking around, and I found a quote by philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. And he said, there will be always be rocks in the road ahead of us. They will either be stumbling blocks or stepping stones. It all depends on how you use them. Now, I did not intend to have it a, a pun, but given the fact that we deal with rocks, uh, this quote makes sense. So I, for a minute, I want you to just think, um, if you think of this project as a rock in your road, were you able to make it into a stepping stone? And if so, how? Well, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think that, you know, thinking about Harry Seed's quote from before and Nietzsche's <laughs> quote now, um, I mean, it seems to me that when, when, when life is going just grandly and swimmingly, uh, most of us don't learn too much from life during that time. When, when life gives us difficulties and, and troubles and heartache and, 
and, and other things like that. That's that's when we're being tested, and and that's when we have an opportunity to learn. And and the question is, you know, are we as individuals and human beings open to those opportunities? I'm speaking broadly, not just for geotechnical engineering or problem projects, but just in life. And um, and so. You know these these uh, difficulties each time are opportunities uh, to learn and, and to get better. You might even have a philosophy that that um, these opportunities are afforded you and your life, <laughs> and uh, until you learn how to handle them gracefully, and and then maybe maybe you get other kinds of opportunities to go from. So in this particular case, um, I would say it's it's about people. It, it always comes down to people in my view. And it's it's about figuring out how to how to do the right thing for the owner who deserves to have a in this case a wall that's standing up and built properly and, and contribute to the extent of not just our liability but but the right thing. And yet how how to also perhaps allow other people to understand that they also had some responsibility here. And to do that in a way that um, that worked. And, 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 and that can be challenging and difficult, um, but we got there. Excellent. That's well, Cor, just, uh, you know, we, we want to thank you for coming on and being so transparent and so honest and talking about a difficult subject when you're a uh, engineer and that is a project that we use term failure but was a challenge was a big headache and thank you for sharing that with us this will cost a lot of money too <laughs> <laughs> but what i'd say about that though is you know not to be flippant but nobody died you know nobody nobody was injured you know no car went off the highway thank, thank goodness um it was, it really came down to about money. And, you know, if it comes month, it's okay, right? And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to belittle things and I'm not trying to make things seem rosier than they are. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, worked out okay. Thank you so much, Gord. Thank you, this was amazing. of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Proudly brought to you by our series sponsor, PO Research, and today's episode sponsor, GeoStructures. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving. <laughs>